Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie. The greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. D is for David Live. Yeah, so this is Bowie's first official live album, recorded 14th and 15th of July 1974 at the Tower Ballroom in Philadelphia, although it was actually in Upper Derby. Right. Uh, which opened in 1927 as a cinema with a capacity of just over 3,000. Yeah, and the album was released on the 29th of October 1974. It was a little bit like Cracked Actor in a way, the documentary, because it was almost like more salt in the wound in a way, just a reminder of what we weren't getting in the UK. So uh, we were all looking forward to it so much, but it was a little bit of a double-edged sword, you know. So Bowie had scarpered to America and deserted us, and now this. But I do remember well my mate Steve Hanley. He had a part-time job, and so he had, like, disposable income. And so he went and bought David Live. And I remember we got it, and we looked at the sleeve and thought he looked absolutely incredible once again, you know. And we we sat down by his little record player and stuck it on. And and we loved it, but it was was already strange. He'd, like, tinkered with stuff, Mm. you know, and you'd look at the track list and see all the young dudes on there and you would expect to hear a pretty similar version to Mop the Hoople and it wasn't. Yeah. It was nothing like the Mop the Hoople version at all. No, not um, so. But we, yeah, we absolutely loved it. The songs have been messed about with but it didn't matter. No, okay, so the, the cover which you mentioned was a great gatefold sleeve, wasn't it, this? And there's a, that famous picture of Bowie on the front in his little powder blue suit. Not looking in the best of health, that's no, what he said. No, He commented later, that record should have been called David Bowie is alive and well and living only in theory. The whole thing was fraught with problems wasn't it? So the backing vocals and sax had to be overdubbed later on in the studio because the microphones didn't catch all of it properly. Uh, but even before it got to that stage, the recording of the first show, mm. so it was the first show full stop, nearly didn't happen. Yeah. Well, the story being that the saxophonist, David Sanborn, he'd learnt from the sound engineer that the show was going to be recorded for a live album. None of the band had been told. So there was, obviously, they'd not been told, no fees were discussed or any of that kind of yeah. stuff. So they sent the experience bass player, who David Bowie had known for a long, long time, Herbie Flowers, seriously nice guy, mm. but he was the uh, designated spokesperson for the yeah, band, wasn't he? so he drew the short straw. So Flowers goes to see Bowie in his dressing room, and he had noticed, he was asking for a little bit more money, but he noticed at the same time that extra microphones on stage and wondered why. A man of his experience would recognise the fact that there was some recording going on there, wouldn't yeah. he? Yeah. 
So the story goes that Flowers demanded a small fee, nothing huge, and Bowie allegedly threw a chair at him mm. at this point. Flowers then upped the fee, it was agreed, and the recording went ahead, which is a strange way of doing business. Very, very frosty atmosphere, but even worse for the fact that you've not got to go and entertain over 3,000 people, but it's going to be recorded and released and millions of people will buy it. So not an ideal scenario at all. Not at all. And it goes that some of the band actually didn't like the show, and you reckon you can hear the tension in some of their playing. I know you love this record. We might have fisticuffs here, but it's not one of my favourite Bowie records. I was disappointed first time I got this. Right. Because I was expecting something completely kind of fiery and explosive and didn't quite get what I was expecting. Oh, yeah. I, I love it. I love it. So the, the personnel, obviously, you've got Bowie, Earl Slick on guitar. You've got Herbie Flowers on bass. Michael Kamen on piano. Moog. It's not a Moog. It's a Moog, apparently. Oboe and arrangements. Yeah. Tony Newman on drums. Pablo Rosario on percussion. David Sanborn on alto sax and flute. Richard Grando, baritone sax and flute. And you've got the reliable Mark Garson on piano and mellotron. Is it G? Yeah, G-U-I. Yeah, G-U. Uh, Andresano on backing vocals. He was a mate of Warren Peace, Jeff's. So I know that much. He could pronounce it properly, I'm That's sure. Absolutely. And of course, as you just mentioned, Warren Peace stroke Jeff McCormack on their backing vocals and dancing. Yeah, reached number two in the UK LP chart, number eight in the USA. And my favourite track probably is, ironically, All the Young Dudes. Just as a postscript to this, I did interview Herbie Flowers maybe about 10, 12 years ago now. He was talking about that tour, I have to say reluctantly. I don't think it was the happiest moment in his life. But he said, I don't think Bowie was at his physical best, but those shows were very well organised. Strange things were going on too. There was some infighting, maybe a lot of other things were going on at the same time. But the band stuck together. To be honest, they're not particularly happy memories. That's all he would really say. And he's a really sweet guy, Herbie Flowers, but he didn't really want to elaborate on what happened. Well, he is a sweet guy, but uh, the funny thing is also that, uh, of course, at the start of the tour, all of the musicians were hidden, weren't they? Mm. That was the thing. So he had all of the props and the stage show and all looking very theatrical, but Bowie with the dancers, Jiu and uh, Warren, mm. uh, dancing around him and tying him up and all that kind of stuff. But all of the musicians were actually hidden behind the scenery. Yeah, and the story shadow. goes also that every now and then, like Herbie Flowers would stick his head out because he was prone to mischief. <laughs> We've already talked about him hanging boots off his bass guitar whilst playing for Mark Boland mm. and T-Rex. He would just stick his head out and like a bit like, gooey, then back again. And it turned into a bit of a game with the musicians because they felt, well, we're in a band. We should be out there and be seen. And they, they, they did eventually become seen as the, as the tour went on, I believe. Didn't see it, as we know. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. D's for Bob Dylan. Well, okay, so you're looking at like 1965, and like many artists in the mid 60s, Bowie went through his Dylan phase. But I mean, at that point in time, he wasn't making records like Bob Dylan. He was making mod records and stompers, wasn't he? That's right, yeah. But he did go and see Dylan in 1965 at the Royal Albert Hall, and it had a, a profound effect on him, and it did affect him a little bit further down with the art slab and all that kind of stuff. But also at the gig was Bowie's soon to be manager, Ken Pitt, which again, I think we've discussed, but he was representing Bob Dylan in the UK at that mm. time. And and the uh, film Don't Look Back was being filmed on that particular tour. All these coincidences, you know. Uh, D.A. Pennebacher was famously filming it, who then went on to film Ziggy's Last Stand. Of course, he got the connection there. So January 1966, Ken Pitt is approached by one of Bowie's representatives to see if he'd be interested in actually taking him on yep. as his manager, uh, probably due to his involvement with Dylan. And, of course, that would have impressed him because Ken Pitt also looked after people like Frank Sinatra when they came over, so he was doing all the big stuff. Yeah, an impressive roster he's got there. So if you move on now to 1970, 
1971, staying with Bob Dylan, BBC concert session, song for Bob Dylan premiere, mm. wasn't it? And it wasn't really a love letter to Bob Dylan. That phase had gone now. Yeah, okay. that's right. He was, he was coming out of it. And uh, people do reckon that a song for Bob Dylan is more of a letter of disappointment than a kind of a love letter to him. Well, it's like. interesting because when he played it at the concert session, he introduced it as song for Bob Dylan, Here She Comes. So there's a VU reference in there as well. It's not all about Bob. And Bowie said later that the idea really, it was a statement. Bob Dylan had been through this stuff, supposedly, you know, the saviour of a generation and all that stuff. And if Bob wasn't doing in rock and roll what Bowie wanted to do, then Bowie would step up and do it instead. Right, OK. That's interesting, yeah. And uh, unless we forget, Mick Ronson ended up being the guitarist on the Rolling Thunder oh. review, didn't he? So it'd be interesting to know what Bowie thought of that. And, and Bob Dylan described Mick Ronson not by his name, but as the English guitarist. <laughs> That's right. It's like he's not even bothered to learn his name, which is quite ridiculous. Absolutely. You know? And there are great stories about Mick Ronson hanging around with Roger McGuinn on that tour and just having the time of their lives. We will get to that because we will go into yeah. Mick Ronson's involvement in detail, won't we? But there's a great quote from Bowie about uh, Dylan, which dates from 1978. He says, Dylan, I didn't get on with him at all. I had a dreadful time with Bob Dylan. Absolutely ghastly. Yeah, there was an interview in Playboy magazine as well. The interviewer says, you're not noted for cordial relationships with other artists. Yet there was a rumour that you flew to Europe to spend a sabbatical with Bob Dylan. What about it? And David Bowie goes, that's a beaut. Haven't even left this country in years. I saw Dylan in New York seven or eight months ago. We don't have a lot to talk about. We're not great friends. Actually, I think he hates me. (laughs) And then the interviewer says, under what circumstances did you meet and Bowie says, very bad ones. We all went back to someone's house after some gig at a club. We had all gone to see someone, I can't remember who, and Dylan was there. I was in a very sort of verbose frame of mind. Mm. And I just talked at him for hours and hours and hours. And whether I amused him or scared him or repulsed him, I really don't know. I didn't wait for any answers. I just went on and on and on about everything. And then I said, good night. He never phoned me. Oh, what a shame. There is a story in one of the Dylan biographies where Dylan is supposedly have said to Bowie's face, look, I, I hate young Americans, don't like it at all, not for me. Oh, dear. Oh. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. D is for, actually, it's a double D, Dennis Davis. Born August 28th, 1949, in Manhattan. One of the best interviewees on the Five Years documentary. So endearing on that. He started off by studying with the drummers Max Roach and Elvin Jones before joining the Clark Terry Big Band in 1967. Right, OK. Then he served in Vietnam. He was wounded during the tour whilst in the army performed as part of the US Navy's Drum and Bugle Corps. Right, fairly do. So good training for him then. So he met Carl Salomar during James Brown, I'm Black and I'm Proud era. Harlem circa 1969 and he'd heard about him from a mutual friend which was Emir Kassan who was a bassist also in the main ingredient which was Carlos Alomar's band as well and they both ended up playing with Roy Ayers and the association with Davy Bowie starts in 1974 when he famously joined the Philly Dogs tour and remained with Alomar and bassist George Murray he, he was on Young Americans before that obviously but he's on fame across the universe with John Lennon and Earl Slick and they became the Bowie's go-to rhythm section didn't they the choice of them, the DAM trio. Yeah, absolutely. So Carlos Alomar had said later on, he said he first met Dennis when he was playing with Roy Ayers. He says, when you're working with a musician in a big place like New York, you should always try to find the people you sound best with. And I found Dennis and Amir and the three of us were a massive rhythm section. So on the first opportunity he got, he mentioned him to David Bowie. He said, look, you've got to get these guys. You've got to get Dennis. These guys will wipe out anybody else. And when Bowie did hear him, he said, that's it. It's over. The door's closed. I'm having him. 
Right. As simple as that. Emir did the same thing, but he has a different personality, said Alomar, and he only lasted a certain amount of time. So it wasn't just the playing. You had to kind of fit in with the whole Bowie aesthetic as well. You had to kind of fit in personality-wise. And it's Dennis, the same in any band, I suppose, it is. isn't it, really? And that's, of course, when George Murray came in at the same time. And that rhythm section lasted. Those classic albums lasted through there until Scary Monsters. Yeah, just amazing. He also became Stevie Wonder's drummer, and then he returned to Bowie in the new millennium, and he was playing live with him, and he was a percussionist, actually, on the reality tour in mm. 2003 and the drummer was Sterling Campbell, who had been taught by Dennis Davis in the first place. Yeah, that's right. Bowie said of Dennis Davis, said that he was so open. He was almost orgiastic in his approach to trying out new stuff. I told him about a Charles Mingus gig that I'd seen where a drummer had polythene tubes that would go into drums and you would suck and blow to change the pressure as you played. Dennis went out the next day and bought all that stuff. He said, Dennis is crazy. We had a lot of his own thoughts on things and he would throw us all kinds of curveballs. Unfortunately, he died of cancer in April 2016 just as he prepared a solo album called The Groove Master yeah, Dennis Davis a tragedy it? like I say on, on five years he's just so sweet oh, he's great. he is so sweet and Tony Visconti remembered him as one of the most creative drummers I've ever worked with and he's worked with a few and a, and a few great ones as mm. well and by Scary Monsters he was playing parts that were unthinkable but they fit in so perfectly his sense of humour was wonderful as an ex-member of the US Air Force he told us stories of seeing a crashed UFO first hand by accidentally walking <laughs> through an unauthorised hangar there will never be Another drummer, human being, and friend like Dennis, a magical man. What a tribute from Tony Visconti. Oh, it's just wonderful him. that. And so, just to sum up, Dennis Davis plays on Young Americans, Station to Station, Low Heroes, Stage, Lodger, Scary Monsters, all the classics. There's a great little series on YouTube at the moment, which is Dennis Davis's son, only a young lad, and he goes off to meet a load of his ex-cohorts. So George Murray is interviewed mm-hmm. there. That's really sweet. And Sterling Campbell. It's there to be had. Go and have a look at it. It's great. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. D is for Dana Gillespie. How about this for a backstory? This isn't your typical rock and roll story. Born in Woking, Surrey, christened Rishenda Antoinette de Winterstein Gillespie, 30th of March 1949. Her mum was a cousin of Lord Buxton. Her dad was Baron von Winterstein Gillespie, a retired Austrian radiologist. Lord Buxton, wasn't he in the Beano? Was he? I, I think so, yeah. Fine, OK. Not only that, she went to the same school that uh, Joan Collins had attended. Whether expected to marry into wealth or go to university, she didn't want any of that. She became the British junior water skiing champion for four years in the early 60s until she went snow skiing and injured her knee in an avalanche. Right, OK, that's such a story. I mean, it there's is. a biopic already in that, isn't there? But yeah, in her own words, she said, I discovered the blues when I went to the American Folk Blues Festival in 1962 and also to see the Yardbirds at the Marquee Club. I was in my early teens and hadn't heard anything like it before. Blues was my first musical love because it's earthy, spiritual and honest. And so she left regular school at 15 and went to theatre school and at the same time she was working in the evenings raising money to afford a drum kit and drum lessons. And in the mornings, I love this, between 5 and 6.30 she was delivering newspapers so she could get enough money to buy the drum kit. Now her daddy's Lord Buxton. Absolutely. Why didn't he just go and buy her one? Well, we you think, wouldn't you? Maybe, well, not, maybe not that well off to begin with. So by 1964 she's got a deal with Pie Records, got Donovan playing guitar for her, starts to play in the local folk circuit, also gets to know Bob Dylan. Uh, so in 1965 a single Thank You Boy was produced by Jimmy Page. So she's in the right area there. Definitely. And she, I mean a great record that I play an awful lot either when I'm DJing or whether I'm on air is Just Gotta Know My Mind, which mm. is by Donna Gillespie and written by Donovan and it's just one of the great kind of Northern Soul stompers. It's yeah. a great, great record. 
record. But as a schoolgirl, she had a young David Bowie carrying home her ballet shoes and teaching her guitar chords. Mm. Then the song Love is Strange, which, uh, yeah, okay. So he was the first boy I knew to have dyed hair who wasn't upper class. So she was hanging out in those circles, obviously. She saw the Manish Boys perform at the Marquee when she was 14 in November 1964. And she also said he came on stage with knee-length suede boots with fringes, a bit like Robin Hood, Sherwood Forest look, long blonde hair and a kind of loose pirate type shirt. We've seen these photographs of Bowie, haven't we? Absolutely. And it's not a great image. No, it isn't a great image. Well, it probably was for her because they were romantically involved for a while as teenagers. She was talked before about having a bit of hanky-panky at her parents' house over in South Kensington. They'd meet up often in Denmark Street, go to the Giaconda Cafe. Uh, When she was invited to Bowie's house in Bromley, this is quite interesting, it was her first experience, she said, of a working man's house and she remembered that they had tuna fish sandwiches. That was the main memory she took from that. Right. That's what I don't think that was decidedly working class, was it? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> there was also an article in the Times in December 68, which is David Bowie, Feathers and Darna Gillespie under the heading The Restless Generation 2. OK. So, I mean, she was a, a constant companion of Bowie's by yeah. the look of it. She was also with him when he played at the Paris Studios. It was a BBC session, wasn't it? Yeah. For John Peel, the in-concert show on there, June 1971. And she takes the lead vocals on Andy Warhol, which we know anyway. And later that summer, she went to Glastonbury with him. Mm. And uh, she said that Bowie and Angie, who he was with by this time, looked like strange twins. That's right, that's right. So July 71, Gem released a promo album featuring Bowie and Darna Gillespie. So Bowie songs are from Hunky Dory, of course. And Tony DeVries, the manager, flew to the States with the promo, trying to negotiate deals for both of them. So he saw Darna Gillespie as this big star, potentially. Yeah. Uh, So she performed backing vocals on it, It Ain't Easy, from the Ziggy album. And then she recorded an album produced by Bowie and Mick Ronson. So all the weight and the muscle was behind her there called Weren't Born a Man, which has a great cover, by the way. Uh, This came after a series of singles and also a couple of LPs for Decca. So she'd moved to RCA, moved to Main Man, joined the Tony DeFree stable. It seemed like the future was set. It was once again Bowie's like setting his mates up, you know? Mm. But yes, yeah, Tony DeFree was quite happy about it. Gave her a recording contract for $60,000 for two albums in the first year of a contract. And apparently she had a thing for DeFree, but it was mutual. Right. And she called him a big daddy figure. Now, I don't know if she means big daddy the wrestler. I hope not. If you yeah. of an age, Google him. But yeah. yeah, probably not. Uh, but she said that he would protect her from uns- scrupulous music biz types. Which is interesting, isn't it? It's interesting, Bob. Steady. What we've discussed. But anyway, so Weren't Born a Man came out in uh, 1974. A couple of tracks produced by Bowie and Ronson. Andy Warhol, her version of A Mother Don't Be Frightened, both dating from 1971. And Main Man chose to promote her in, well, let's say, black basques and suspenders. Mm. And she had a BMW, loads of money, or so she thought... But by the time she left Main Man, she was broke and she recalls this story about when she was playing a theatre in the West End, she didn't even have enough pocket change to tip the doorman. So that's the pattern emerging. So mm. she had ostensibly a, a great lifestyle and the trappings of success, but no cash. Yes. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah, and she, she also said of Angie Bowie, she would dress me in stiletto heels, black stockings, suspenders and little skirts split to the waist. It looked pretty outrageous and didn't always go with the blues world. Well, you what? It wouldn't, would it? Of course not. I mean, we're talking about glam and we're talking about burlesque here, but yeah. in the blues clubs it's oh, pretty much out of place. Yeah, forbidden. She was also at the Marquee in 73 when Bowie did the 1980 Floor Show. Gillespie and Bowie didn't work together again, although Bowie and Mark Boland and Gillespie sort of jammed at her flat in Knightsbridge at some point in 1977. Right, OK. Uh, later on, of course, she became better known as playing in lots of West End musicals. Uh, she was in, like, Catch My Soul, Othello, Hand of the Baskervilles and also starred in the Ken Russell film his biography of Marla. Mm, that's pretty crap, that. But, um, no, offence but uh, yes she was in Jesus Christ Superstar not surprisingly Mary Magdalene 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. D is for Dick Cavett. Okay, born in Nebraska, 1936. His presenting career started early. By uh, as early as eighth grade, he directed a live Saturday morning radio show sponsored by the Junior League, and he played the title role in The Winslow Boy. He was a state president of the school council in high school and also a gold medalist at the state gymnastics championship. Well, good on him. Early jobs, a golf caddy, store detective, copyboy for Time magazine, label typist and magician, which is how he met Johnny Carson, who was another part-time magician. He went to Yale University and directed dramas, a clever guy. Whilst he was at Time, Cabot wrote a letter to Stan Laurel, who was a big hero of his, and they met at Laurel's apartment in Hollywood. Later the same day, Cabot wrote a tribute that Jack Parr read out on The Tonight Show, which Laurel saw and he appreciated, and so they became fast friends after that, and Cabot would often visit Laurel at his home up to three weeks before Laurel died. Right, OK. So uh, he was also a talent coordinator and writer on The Tonight Show. He discovered Woody Allen uh, and uh, also tried his look as a stand-up comic in Greenwich Village in the early 60s. So he's a trier. He is a trier. I can't imagine him as a stand-up comic, though. Didn't mm. quite sit. So by 1968, ABC TV hired him to present This Morning and later that year, The Dick Cavett Show, which is when the legend starts, really. Well, yeah. So Bowie famously, or notoriously, if you like, he appeared on The Dick Cavett Show on ABC TV on the 5th of December, 1974. Though the actual event itself had taken place, it had been recorded when Bowie was playing at Radio City Music Hall in New York. Now, this is a great appearance. So he performed 1984 and Young the Americans, both of which you can find online. And they are incredible pieces of work, aren't they? They're wonderful, wonderful clips. And then he sits down for a chat with Dick Cavett. And we've talked about Bowie's drug addiction at this point. Mm. He looks so bad. He looks so gaunt, so thin, eternally restless. And he has a cane that he just keeps tapping on the floor constantly while he's being interviewed. And sniffing. Yeah, and sniffing just all the time. He must have had a cold. Now, Dick Cavett, he seems nervous about it all as well. And I suppose you would be because, I mean, he put you on edge. Everything that Bowie was doing, mm. like not looking at him in the eye, just looking at the cane and tapping it on the floor. And one of the things that Dick Cavett says to David Bowie in the opening gambit, he said, I've had the weirdest reaction from people who know that you're going to be on. Someone said they'd be scared to sit and talk to you. Some people said that you would bite my neck. A very peculiar kind of thing. So if you kind of watch this, what is strange is 
is. Obviously, Bowie's in this agitated state, shall we say, but there's no point during it where Cabot's professionalism takes over and he decides to just smooth everything down. You'd think he'd just kind of take it down a level, make him feel more comfortable. It never quite happens, so the nervousness that Cabot has seems to transfer onto Bowie and goes back and forth it's just, constantly. It, is, it really does go back and forth. It's just an, a really edgy... Uh, I mean, it's one of those things where you have to wonder even why they probably let it go out in the end. Yeah. Because, I mean, maybe they had nothing else to substitute with. And I'm glad it went out, but it was, it, it, again, uncomfortable somewhere. Yeah. So at one point, Cabot says to him, look, uh, which of your many guises sort of best reflect the real you? And Bowie says, well, what do you think I'm like? And Cabot says, to me, you seem like a working actor. And Bowie kind of laughs a bit. He says, yeah, that's right. That's very good. So there's no kind of set kind of interview going on here. It's just kind of, seems very, very random and spontaneous. I suppose, you know, having been there myself, if you ask somebody a question, then you're hoping that they're going to ramble on and give you really great stories mm, for five yeah. minutes. But he didn't. He did. He's like, he's sniffing and banging his cane about. So he, <laughs> Fair he, he's not really the ideal <laughs> guest, is he? And Bowie said, I've heard that I'm a person of diverse interests. I'm not really very academic, but I glit from one thing to another a lot. And he, Cavett says, glit? And Bowie says, it's like flit, but the 70s version. <laughs> But the subject matter they cover is interesting. Well, it potentially is, because they talk about Bowie's childhood, the art of performance itself, his fear of flying, which was raging at that time, William Burroughs, talks about uh, the artist Diana Arbus, mime, Angie, his son Zowie, and there's just the thrill of playing on stage. So it's like the subjects have covered, but what comes out of there is completely different. Yeah, OK. And again, Cavett says, uh, why do rock stars tend to have premonitions of doom? It seems to be a theme in their work and their lives. And Bowie says, because they're pretty nutty to be doing it in the first place, you know, very Tangled minds, very messed up people, Cavett says. Do you ever try to picture yourself at 60? And Bowie, oh no. Mm. Well, I mean, at that point in time, he was so unhealthy that you probably couldn't even picture 40 at yeah. that point in time, sadly. At the end of the show, he does foot stomping, which is the old R&B tune. He also did a version of Can You Hear Me that wasn't broadcast at the time. But, you know, he was on form, certainly, when it came to the musical things. It's interesting that at the same time as this, there was a teen magazine in the UK called Mirabelle, and Bowie had a ghosted column in that. Right. And naturally, the subject of Dick Cavett was addressed. And Bowie supposedly wrote, Dick Cavett and I got on very well. It was almost like sitting in my living room talking to a friend. I don't think so. No, well, I mean, it was later on of the appearance. This is what Bowie said. It was horrendous. I had no idea where I was. I couldn't hear the questions. To this day, I don't even know if I bothered answering them. I was so out of my gourd. Just as an aside to this, his uh, appearance also also coincided with the appearance of Roy Detrice on that show, on the Dick Cavett show that night. Now, Bowie and Ken Pitt had gone to see Roy Detrice's one-man show called Brief Lives at the Criterion Theatre in 1969, and Bowie came out of that raving, saying to Pitt, now that's what I call theatre. Wow. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. D is for Decca Records. So, uh, David Bowie first auditioned for Decca Records with the Conrads in the August of 1963. They performed one song live, which was I Never Dreamed. So, Decca turned them down and also did a guy called Eric Easton, who was managing the Rolling Stones at the time and he was looking for another band to take charge of. So, not going so well. Mm, not at all. Ready, Steady, Go heard the recording and they gave him the knockback as well. Mm. Interestingly, though, Bowie didn't actually sing lead vocals on that track. The frontman was Roger Ferris. Uh, Bowie just sings in backing vocals. Right, OK. The tapes, as is often the case with these things, were lost, in inverted commas, but quite often they weren't lost, were they? They were just wiped over because they didn't want to just keep the tape and very expensive to do that. But this is an interesting thing. They made acetates of the bands that did the actual scenario for them yeah. and gave a couple of the band members acetate. So if somebody's got one of those somewhere, yeah. that's probably the only recording that does exist of it. Yeah, wonderful. So by May 1964, Leslie Kahn, who we've covered in C, negotiated a deal with Decca for... 
Bowie's new band, The King Bees. And by June, Liza Jane was released, which was produced and written by Leslie Conn, of course. Of course, and we have done the joke before, but this does make Davy Jones absolutely a con artist. Absolutely. Yeah. So Davy Jones and The King Bees. Davy Jones, just 17 years old at this point in time. The record was promoted on Jukebox Jewelry, Ready Steady Go and The Beat Room, but it still didn't sell, so not good. No. Well, at least Charlie Drake liked it. Well, that's fair enough, isn't it? Yeah. And then they were off to pie for a while, but uh, yeah, it kind of comes back full circle. Watch this space. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. D is for Jeff Dexter. Born in Lambeth, 1946, grew up in Newington Butts, became famous as a DJ, club promoter, record producer and a dancer, rose to prominence in the mid-60s as a resident DJ at Middle Earth, closely associated with the mod scene and popularised the twist in England. Yeah, he's got a twist in the story. Bubum, But yeah, into fashion at a young age, as a boy he joined the Sea Scouts and the Boys Brigade so that he could wear the uniform. And he did dressmaking and tailoring, which made him popular with girls. Right. Yeah, OK. So he uh, became a member at the Lyceum in London in August 1961, but he was only aged 14 at the time. But he said he was 16 because there was an age bar on there. And uh, it was there that he first met the DJ, Ian Samwell, and they became firm friends. Yeah, so a couple of years before that, he'd become friends with 12-year-old Mark Feld, as this is pre-Mark Boland, and they used to go to the Lyceum together. Both of them, because they were diminutive, had trouble getting into the venue in the first place, so they made it up with plenty of attitude and nice clothes. Right. So they could, neither of them could afford to buy the expensive suits so they'd raid the children's department of high street shops and adapt the clothes themselves with help from their friends that's bonkers isn't it so in 1961 september of he was banned from the lyceum for dancing the twist which had just arrived in england now according to dexter the management of the lyceum thought the dance was obscene now here's a twist so two weeks later he managed to get backing by promising not to dance Two weeks after that, ironically, the twist was then demonstrated by the Arthur Murray School of Dancing at the Lyceum. So they were all loving it now. And uh, Dexter's dancing was filmed and included in the Pathé newsreel shown in cinemas. So as a result, he was hired by the Lyceum as a dancer aged 15, even though he was too young to be in there in the first place. And he said the thought of being paid to dance with women was just phenomenal. Oh, there you go. So 1962, he made a record written by Ian Samuel called Let Me Teach You How to Dance and, on the B-side, twisting like the French kids do. He started DJing at the UFO Club on Tottenham Court Road in London and he became resident DJ at Middle Earth in Covent Garden along with John Peel, so they would alternate. And he was DJ at the Glastonbury Fair, which was the first Glastonbury in 1971. David Bowie played that, of course, and there's a lovely photo, I think, from 2000 when Bowie went back to Glastonbury of him and uh, Jeff Dexter together, taken by Mark Adams. Right, OK. And uh, in 1970, Jeff Dexter, not Mark Adams, became the manager of America, the band, not the place. Now, if you don't know them, it's Horse With No Name, which is one of the most depressing songs of all time. <laughs> Do you think? Oh, oh man, I can't, on, it's man. one of those I just cannot stand it. I don't think Neil Young liked it, did he? Because his dad heard it on the radio and said, I like your new single, son. They said, it wasn't me, dad, it's somebody else. Oh, Sound God, like it me. haunts me, that tune, never mind. So uh, Jeff Dex had seen Bowie at the Brommel Club in 1964 and loved the fact that he looked really sharp being a natty dresser and the rest of it. This was the same year that Bowie and uh, Mark Boland first met. Dexter kind of described their relationship as being like brothers, a good rivalry, young blokes kind of rivalry. Right, OK. So in the mid-60s, Bowie wrote Silver Treetop School for Boys and gave it to the band The Beat Stalkers from Scotland. And Dexter 
Marks have played it all the time, apparently, at Middle Earth, because it was a perfect anti-establishment song and what he called a psychedelic comedy record, which would have the alarm bells going for my point. But anyway, he also played another Bowie tune, Over the Wall We Go, all right? So that was at a place called Tiles, mm. here, right? A mod hangout. But that was also pretty comedic, wasn't it? Yeah. That was done by a guy called Oscar, which was, in fact, Paul Nicholas, wasn't it? The actor. Oh, yeah, of course. And yeah. it's just rotten. Yeah, it is rotten. I yeah. mean, psychedelic comedy records, that is a niche market, mm. for sure. Thankfully. Uh, Dex had booked Bowie for Glastonbury in 71. Uh, he says also he'd been booked to play the last day of the Isle of Wight Festival a year earlier than that, but the promoter couldn't stand his music. Right, I didn't know that. Odd. Uh, also, along with uh, Bowie's on-off girlfriend, Leslie Duncan, Dexter Wood and Bowie would convene at Duncan's place in Hampstead in 1968, where every week they'd have UFO-spotting meditation evenings. Uh, Dexter said, we hoped the flying saucers would come and take us away. We did see UFOs, absolutely. <laughs> the other shared interest was Buddhism. Mm. Also that year, Dexter was in the audience when Bowie performed a mime set at Middle Earth, which was Gandalf's Garden, and it was about the flight of Tibetans from the east to the west. We've talked about that before, yeah, I think. we have. He was also, of course, as a promoter at the Roundhouse in London, Dexter books loads and loads of bands. When The Hype, which is Bowie's sort of pre-glam band, played there in February 1970, he would introduce them on stage. He said that the name The Hype only caught on a bit later on. First of all, it was just a casual mention to begin with. Right. Uh, when they returned, so this is a month later for the Atomic Sunrise Festival, this is the one where Genesis was supporting them. He said, Genesis were booked as a bit of a favour to a friend of a friend. I never actually liked them. They were a bunch of shit, but we needed somebody to open for David Bowie. Ouch. Uh, so maybe not the greatest star spot in the world, eh, considering no. how many records Genesis went on to sell, but each to their own. And uh, Jeff Dexter was also present when Bowie appeared on the Mark TV show in 1977 at Granada Studios in Manchester. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. D is for DRAM Records and David Bowie's debut album. Absolutely. So having had little success with Pi Records and the lower third with singles like Can't Help Thinking About Me, Do Anything You Say and I Dig Everything, Bowie moved on to DRAM Records, which was a subsidiary of his former home, Decca. There you go. First release being Rubber Band, a single in December 67. The B-side was London Boys. Still very much enthralled to Anthony Newley at this point. And then the debut album comes along, released on the 1st of June 1967. On the DRAM label released uh, you know talk about bad timing on the same day as Sergeant Pepper oh. now Sergeant Pepper sold millions Davey Bowie's debut album didn't again we've been here before but it's uh, one of the reasons why the original issue of it is highly highly collectible oh, yes. isn't it yeah and it was that new kind of music again previously discussed but you know it was just an odd album mm. and it was even odd to people who liked Davey Bowie at the time and uh, David Buckley in his book Strange Fascination called it the vinyl equivalent of the Madwoman in the attic yeah so he's just very much, as we've discussed, very much still under the spell of people like Lionel Bart, Tommy Steele, Anthony Newley particularly, but he's already into the Kinks and Pink Floyd. It's not really obvious where he's going. Well, he did say that Pink Floyd, when he'd seen them live, kind of edged him towards doing a musical again, yeah, didn't he? Yeah. So I think what's telling here is, so Ken Pitt is looking after him at this point, and his assertion is that he wants Bowie to be an all-round entertainer. Hedge so your got, bets. So you've got this young guy here who's really kind of absorbing all this new music as a traditional British music going on behind him at the same time. He's trying to be something. He's formulating ideas in his head, but his manager just really wants him to be like a, a kind of variety performer, if anything. Yeah, yeah you know. game for anything. So he's a little bit confused. There's vaudeville, rock, musical. Bowie said the music itself seemed to have roots all over the place. I didn't know if I was Max Miller or Elvis Presley. Right, OK. So he wrote all the songs and arranged them with Deck Fernley, having reportedly taught themselves a craft of using arrangements and stuff from the Observer Book of Music. And that was basically so that they could understand the terminology used 
used by the session musicians from the London Philharmonic Orchestra that Mike Vernon had brought in. Yeah. Must have been daunting. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Talk about novices. So Ken Pitt, meanwhile, adds the sleeve notes, trying to build up his charge and the rest of it. He says, uh, Bowie's vision itself straight and sharp as a laser beam. It cuts through hypocrisy prejudice and cant. Now, the reviews were quite good, although perhaps typical was a magazine like A Disc and Music Echo, which was sort of Dan Bowie with a bit of faint praise. Right. He said, here's a new talent that deserves attention, for though David Bowie has no great voice, he can project words with a cheeky side that's endearing, but not precocious. Cheeky. Right, I'm sure he loved that. So the songs on the album, uh, we won't like, dissect them all, but, you know, uh, Uncle Arthur, mm. the story of a social misfit in his 30s who loves comics and follows Batman. His American publisher apparently tried to foist it on Peter, Paul and Mary, but they were having none of it. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I can't blame them. No, not at all. Uh, Sell Me a Coat, a bit of a sad ballad. Judy Collins turned that one down, as did Peter, Peter Paul, Paul and, and Mary. Mary yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, OK, there is a theme here. The Rubber Band has uh, a marching tune. It's got a tuba in it as a lead instrument. So you're wondering where all this is going. Yeah, Love You Till Tuesday, which actually is a great song, yes, isn't it? Is. And that's showing kind of the inkling of where Bowie can go a little bit later on. That is a great tune. It is, absolutely. And this one was reviewed by the guest reviewer in Melody Maker in May 67, the guest reviewer being Sid Barrett. And he says, yeah, he says, it's a joke number. Jokes are good. I think people will like the bit about it being Monday when, in fact, it was Tuesday. Very chirpy, said Sid. But I don't think my toes were tapping at all. Ouch. Whoa. That must have hurt, mustn't it, to yeah. see Sid coming up with that? It certainly hurt Ken Pitt, because Ken Pitt called those comments moronic. Uh, DRAM dropped him the following year, so Bowie went back and made a video for Love You Till Tuesday, realised that was probably the best track on there, and yeah. the producer Mike Vernon has said that in the past, and tried to shop it around for a new deal. Right, OK, well, I hope he didn't shop it to Sid. Uh, there is a happy land and more pre-echoes here, an early manifestation of Bowie's vision of a super race, you know, the generation estranged from its elders, and uh, it's, its themes visited, like in The Man Who Sold the World and Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust, you know, and guess what? Peter, Paul and Mary turned it turned down. Turned it down, oh, yeah. We are hungry men again. You know, recurring theme that kind of later came on in Bowie's work about the self-styled messiah, you know, in Oh You Pretty Things, Ziggy Stardust mm. and the rest of it. Although there is a bloke in it who sounds a bit like Kenneth Williams. Well, that'll mm. do for me. Yeah, When I Live My Dream, that's an interesting one, already projecting the image of someone into a starring role, you know. And it goes back to kind of the uh, the mime work that he'd done a little bit before. Yeah, yeah. Little Bombardier, again, a kind of waltz with uh, brass and strings and piano about a returning war veteran. Silly Boy Blue, which was to do with Bowie's fascination with Tibet and Buddhism. Now, this one was offered to uh, Jefferson Airplane and Big Brother and the holding company. Guess what? They turned it down. Mm. And Billy Fury, he actually covered it. Oh. But where were Pete and Paul and Mary when all this was going? That's what I want to know. Fickle. Come buy my toys, acoustic 12-string guitar. Here we go with orchestral bits. This was offered to Peter, Paul and Mary. <laughs> they didn't like it. Oh, blimey. I, I, they should have gone back, like, in retrospect, in the mid-70s when Bowie was massive and oh, done yeah. all the tunes that they'd been offered. Join the gang. Seems a little bit out of place, this one, about British youth culture and peer pressure and drugs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, she got medals, which sort of is an androgynous tale, so kind of pre-echo Ziggy and the rest of it. Right, Made of Bond Street, that's another waltz with a string arrangement. Please, Mr Gravedigger, which is a really odd one because it's really a spoken word piece over a lot of special effects, especially rain. So it's Bowie has a gravedigger. It's a very dark tale. It is, and it one. finishes the album it appropriately. Does. The players on it, Davey Bowie, vocals, guitar, saxophone, arrangements. Big Jim Sullivan, who is everywhere at this point in time, banjo, sitar and guitar. Derek Boys on organ. Deck Fernley on bass and orchestral arrangements. Johnny Eager on drums. And of course, producer Mike Vernon. An engineer? Gus Dudgeon. Dudgeon, yeah. yeah. He goes on to work with Bowie later on on Space Oddity. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded 
by Howard Knox. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Earthling, Elephant Man, Elizabeth Taylor, Earl's Court, Earl Slick, Eel Pie Island... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.